I'm literally reading her handwriting and, and breaking her code, so it were, as it were, um, to reveal this history that just speaks directly to me as a lesbian woman in 2021. Like, it, it's just incredible. Hello, I'm Natalie from Genealogy Stories and welcome to Twice Removed, the show where we talk about everything history related. Hello there everybody, I'm joined today by uh, Livia Labate and Amanda Price, I hope I said that right. Um, they're here from the Pact with Potential project which um, is looking at uh, the life of Anne Lister and, and beyond and more and um, if Anne Lister sounds familiar, it might be familiar if you've, if you've watched the programme Gentleman Jack, um, but it's about so much more than just a BBC adaptation so I'm really excited to get started, so hi everyone. Hello, it's great to be with you. Okay, great. So I wonder whether you could start off by telling me, um, oh, I sh oh, sorry, I should have mentioned that um, the Pact with Potential project is working alongside the West Yorkshire Archive project. Um, but before we talk about the project itself, I just thought it might be a good idea if I rewind myself. Uh, <laughs> could you tell me a little bit about who, for people who don't know, who was Anne Lister? Amanda, why don't you take it away? It's such a loaded question. <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> who was Anne Lister? Well, she was a woman who lived in the 19th century. Um, she was from Halifax, West Yorkshire, um, and she was a landowner there. Um, she inherited uh, Shipton Hall, which is a fantastic place to go and visit if you're ever up in that area. Um, she managed and uh, managed that estate when she inherited, inherited it from her uncle, um, but she's sort of more famous, well, not sort of, she absolutely is more famous for being a avid writer and methodical journal keeper. Um, and she has 26 volumes of her journals in archive today. She kept journals like every single day of her life and wrote down the minutiae detail of every single thing that she did, saw. It's incredible. Um, so they're estimated to be about five million words, the total of her journals, um, and a sixth of that is written in what she would call crypt hand, which is sort of like a secret code that she devised herself so that she could document her more sort of private, intimate um, encounters with other women and also bodily functions and <laughs> um, weirdly amendments that she would do to her own clothes and financial matters so just the things that she didn't really want other people to be able to poke around and and see um she also was an avid correspondent she had lots of people that she was writing to all the time and there are over 1000 letters in her archive as well um i think it's actually about 2000 letters uh, to and from her uh, which is vast really if you if you think about the the amount of space that would even take up and the fact that she kept it as well absolutely and, and we know that it isn't all there because she would periodically go through and burn letters um so there, there would have been more if she hadn't gone through and edited them um yeah, Livia, do you, do you want to expand a bit more about Alistair? Oh, no, I think that's brilliant. And I think speaking to her, her business prowess, like in addition to the land management and the state management with rents, etc, you know, that included mills and shops and other things. So she was really um, 
uh, pretty ahead of her time in terms of like how expensive her reach was. Uh, she she was also responsible for introducing the coal business to to that estate and and nearby. Um, so she was very <clears throat> very much someone who was both a self starter, uh, also interested in developing businesses. So that's something. She, and she also did real real estate investments and things like that uh, to. Uh, different degrees of success. Um, but, um, but she, she seemed to be very interested in expanding and growing the opportunities both for Shibden estate, but also for herself as a way to, to better herself and find a better position for herself. Do you get a sense of her personality from her? Um, you know, you've obviously mentioned that she's writing about very personal details as well. Do you, do you feel like you've got a sense of her personality from reading her diaries? Or does she remain elusive somehow? That's a really fun question because when when you read her journals, I feel like, you know, they cover such a long period of her life. And just like with anyone else, you can really see her evolve and change. And, you know, earlier in, in her life, just like trying to find herself and lots of questions about whether or not she was like pleasing other people, where her, where she belonged. And later on, you see like a different level of confidence and interest and just like excitement. Um, and so like you, you really see someone really develop over time. So I find it really hard to talk about her as a person, like you'd meet someone and describe them because you could really describe her very differently, I think, depending on each part of her life. Uh, but, you know, as, as a way to summarize her, I think, you know, someone who's just so passionate about life, like there's nothing that does not interest her. And you can really see such a diversity of interest through her journal, through her life. You know, she read extensively, uh, corresponded with so many people, like Amanda said, and you can just really see that nothing seemed boring to her. She could always inspect it or look at it from some way. Um, but she's also just really funny. I, like I, I read her, her words and I feel like she has a lot of humor uh, in, in how she talks about things and thinks about things, a little bit of dry humor. Um, so, so those are some of the, the things that I see. And, and to put it into perspective, just how unusual is it to find, um, you know, so many written accounts from, from, from a person of that period? recognised by the world heritage um, by the UNESCO World Heritage yeah as, as an incredible um, document historical document basically and I think it, it often gets sort of compared with Samuel Pepys but it's I mean Samuel Pepys wasn't as long or as detailed <laughs> as Anne Lister so I think it's I think it's relatively unique really yeah in terms of historical the, documents and the fact that it was it was found after being concealed for a really long time was sort of like this treasure, like no one knew about. There's always this discussion about whether she intended for it to be public or not, uh, if she uh, specifically wanted to eventually be published or portions of it. Uh, and so even as you read it, you it's interesting to ask that question uh, because sometimes it's like, would you actually want these words to be out in the world? Like there are certain details that feel incredibly intimate um, but sometimes even in her language, it feels like she's writing for someone else. So it's really interesting to compare that and see sort of like the possibilities there. Okay. I know um, Gentleman Jack obviously focused a lot on her sexuality. Um, just how important is that to her legacy? Um, and are we in danger of kind of putting modern interpretations onto, onto somebody in the past? Um, would she have thought of herself as you know, solely liking women, which she have identified as in some way homosexual or lesbian or like, or is that a modern 
concept that we're putting onto the past. Well, we, we need words to talk about things. And yeah. we, we have our modern frames and modern terms, and they're just not necessarily terms that she would have used or how she would have characterized herself. But I think it's necessary to be able to talk about her and understand her to explore her from different lenses. So some, some folks like really feel like just, you know, encapsulating like her, the way she portrays herself in through her words as, as a lesbian, but that's not a term that would have meant anything to her. Uh, but that's not just about her sexuality. You can really think of her in different ways. And there are ways to think about her that I don't know that she would recognize. Like some people describe her as a feminist and like, I just don't really characterize her that way based on like how she, uh, how she did certain things. Um, but I feel like it's necessary uh, to really look at her from different perspectives without like starting as a starting point, trying to like box her into any particular definition. Um, I feel like folks uh, don't really realize like how little we have explored in Lister. Like there's really like not that much that has been explored. Like because the, the diaries hadn't been uh, transcribed yet, like not a lot of people have had the, the ability to really spend time with her through her words. And so I feel like, you know, being able to um, meaningfully examine her from a variety of lenses, whether they're modern lenses, mod lenses that also take into account her context at the time um, and, and appropriately frame her in the historical context, absolutely are necessary. Um, but I feel like we don't need to rush into like trying to categorize her in any one particular way. Yeah, yeah, not to put her in a box. Um, so you mentioned there about the the diaries not being fully transcribed. Could you tell me a little bit about the Pact with Potential project and uh, and its aims? Uh, sure. So um, what what our project is is not about transcribing the the journals. That is a project that the uh, West Yorkshire Archive Services have um, started. Um, they hold the the journals today. Um, they've done all the work of putting uh, digitized images of the journals online to make it freely available. And so our project, what we're trying to do is just help people get access to information about Ann Lister. Really, that, it's that simple. Uh, I think all of us, as we started getting interested in her, uh, you know, started reading some books or exploring what was out there. Um, but you know, there are some information that was just not very easily accessible. So we spent all this time searching for it and trying to understand it. We're like, well, does everyone have to go through the same hurdles? Why don't, can we make this a little easier for everyone? So the intent of, of this project is to just make information more accessible, as well as provide a forum for people who have this like interest to come together and work together potentially. Um, we've, we have already found that just by the nature of discussing and Lister, uh, together, everyone is bringing in a different perspective. Uh, everyone has a different in interest, but they all intersect in some way. So there are some really fantastic collaborations that have come out of, of this exercise that are exactly the kinds of things that we want to support by by having this this project. I loved your website. I loved the way that you could um, you know use one person and one point in history, and it and and then it dived off into all these these different areas that you're also encouraging other people to to contribute to so I, I think I saw something on there about um the weather at one point and I did it was just that holistic which I I really enjoyed looking through yeah, um, and that's 
that's one of the interesting things about starting to get interested in, in exploring and Lister is, you know, because we have both a lot of words from her that describe her day-to-day -day interest. And because she was so interested in so many things, there are so many facets that you can explore. And so that's, what's been really interesting is like, you know, when, when I started doing some of this work, I was interested in the books that she read. So we started the, the bookshelf. So which that one is just um, from the amazing work that all the transcribers are doing, uh, bringing information out of the journals, we're able to then um, create a reference of like every time she mentions a book, we can log that. And then like, what an interesting data set to look at and understand sort of her interests. But, you know, other folks are interested in, you know, other topics. And so for any particular lens into all of this, all of this body of work, we can create a project to support sort of like creating a, a, a set of data or, or just an exploration or research questions that people may have and facilitate a, sort of a conversation on top of that. Um, but none of this at all would be possible without the transcription project, which I think Amanda can speak to a little better. Yeah, um, I'm working as part of the transcription project um, and I've done a, I, I haven't counted the number of pages that I've done, but it, it feels like quite a lot, but like a drop in the ocean compared to the volumes of journals that are there. Talking about one particular aspect um, that I found quite interesting um, watching Gentleman Jack, which I know is not a, 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 not a gospel portrayal, but um, one of the things that I found quite interesting was um, Anne Lister's involvement in her family business. Uh, and I just wondered whether you had any thoughts on, you know, what was she actually like as a businesswoman? Um, you know, the show makes out that she's like kind of almost like a business genius. And I just kind of wondered, you know, how accurate is that portrayal? And like, I'm sure it's much more nuanced in, in, in reality. So I thought that would be quite interesting to chat about. I mean, she was very accomplished and uh, she was also very proud of her accounting. Uh, she's very detailed in that way. And she knew that she was doing a good job at it. She was very aware of the power her money had uh, early on in life when she did not have much of it. So uh, you can see over time how she appreciates her ability to like have any money at all to do anything. And once she becomes uh, the person in charge of Shivden Hall, this is a, like a first opportunity for her to really uh, make some bigger decisions. But even before then, she was giving her own suggestions to her uncle James about how things should or should not be done. Um, and it was because of that interest and, and that already a drive towards or, or an interest in the business that I believe would is one of the reasons why he thought that she was the right person to inherit Chipton from him. Uh, so she's always had that, that drive and that particular interest. And then once she had the opportunity to really do it, she did it. She really expanded uh, what, was, what was available at Chipton and, and the family business and demonstrated that she was very capable. And you know, she basically learned it on her own. And, and like I said, she studied really hard and abroad you know, across a broad set of topics, uh, and this was one of them. So I think the uh, the spoils of the estate really speak to her ability to do it, and I think the evidence in the journals really describe sort of the day to day of like that level of attention and care about money. Where is it going? Where is it coming from? How is it going to 
uh, like why making certain investments would make sense, uh, taking some really bi big um, business risks, like going into the coal business, like never having had that context, you just went for it. So I really think that's a very uh, strong aspect of, of her accomplishments. I find it quite interesting when you say, uh, when you mention her learning, because I'm, uh, I, I'm guessing that's um, informal learning, learning that she's taken upon herself to do rather than in a school, which you might have expected a, um, a man or a boy at that time to, to receive. Is that true? She did attend school. She attended school um, until sort of early teenage, her early teenage years, but then she, she basically took it upon herself to continue her studies because I don't, I don't think that it was common for girls to stay on at school past certain you know, like 13, 14, um, whereas, whereas boys would, you know, eventually hopefully go off to university. Um, so she took it upon herself and she was actually quite strict with herself about a, the routine. And she, you know, trust, chastises herself when she stays in bed too long and she hasn't read enough or, you know, she's, she's very hard on herself in those earlier years. Um, and she takes some instruction from some local tutors who well as well who sort of you know give her exercises to do but it's, it's mostly you know self-motivated uh, learning yeah, but yeah even later in life when you know being self-taught is definitely part of like she has so many broad interests also that she was just like going for so many things but later in life um, she went to Paris and she looked for tutors there for a specific topic that she was interested in so she took tutoring uh, and, and in anatomy and other topics and, and did a lot of discovery and exploration there uh, as part of her for learning. But this was really kind of self-conceived. Like she, she made her own curriculum her whole life, uh, but she, she didn't always just do that independently. She did engage other people and looked for people who could help and coach her um, and, and bring her the information that she was really looking for. And do you think that she was quite unusual in that, as far as we know, or do you think that actually more women, certainly women who could afford to anyway, were, were trying to um, learn about different interests, even if they weren't necessarily applying it to their own business, they were just following their interest. Do you think that was quite common or do you think she was quite unusual in that respect? No, it's hard because we don't necessarily have all the evidence. We, we, the evidence from what we have of her is what tells us just how broad and diverse her interests were. To me, that seems unique based on like other evidence from, from other folks. Um, but there were certainly other people at her time who had the means who did have a further education than she did. And I think a lot of times we see some examples of folks whose like brothers or whatever were uh, doctors, etc., who like helped a certain women like their sisters, etc., uh, get a little more into certain topics. Um, but but I still think that she's unique in in the sense that the breadth of of knowledge that she <clears throat> gained over time. Uh, but there were certainly people in her circle that had uh, more education than others. Um, uh, Amanda, I'm gonna incorrectly all this but i immediately thought of francis pickford who befriended um um at, they were actually attending lectures in halifax and then that's where they met one another um so she's another good example of a woman who was interested in you know educating herself beyond the norm at that time and she's also a fascinating person 
I was going to ask actually about who who were some of Anne Lister's friends. Have you have you got any favourites <laughs> that you'd like to share, and um, who they were and and some of their stories? Yeah, I think everybody's got their own favourite. We all have with teams. <laughs> We're all on different teams. <laughs> I'm personally Team Sabella. Okay, who is uh, a, a friend of Anne's, um, and who was actually a lover as well. Um, and she was a, a Scottish lady who Anne befriended at a party in York, um, and then they they went on to have a a 10-year friendship that was mainly based on correspondence, just because Anne was travelling a lot, um, and Sibella was sort of, you know, with her family in Scotland, so most of their relationship takes place over the course of their correspondence, which is really interesting to read, Um, but no, yeah, she had a wide circle, a wide circle of friends, um, and a lot of that was around York and York society sort of early on in the 1820s. Um, she was uh, friends with uh, Marianne Lawton, Isabella Norcliffe, um, Miss Mary Valance. And they would all sort of attend, well, parties together and, and, and stay in each other's homes. And um, yeah, shenanigans would take place. <laughs> Um, what reading about those those relationships? What kind of clues do you think they can give us about, um, for one of again using a modern phrase, but about LGBTQ communities in the past? And, and again, I know that's putting a modern term on on the past. Um, I think. Sorry, go ahead, Amanda. I don't even think we really need to guess because I mean Anne was very detailed about what was going on. Um, in the relationships between these women and because of the way that she had documented it she doesn't just talk about her own relationships with women she's discussing the relationships that were already going on within this social circle um it didn't always include her often they did but <laughs> not always um so it wasn't just you know and Lister having relationships with other women there were there were other there were other people there were other women you know pursuing their own interests um at this time as well um and I think that's really interesting, especially looking back, because I personally didn't appreciate that at all. I watched Gentleman Jack and thought, wow, this is this is fantastic. I need to go find out more about this woman. Um, and it has revealed a whole world of LGBT people who existed plus like 200 plus years ago that I had no idea about. And I sort of feel like I've rediscovered my own history. And... I never knew about it and it, it's just it's incredibly powerful and motivating to see that uncovered especially when I'm you know transcribing as well I'm literally reading her handwriting and and breaking her code so it were as it were um to reveal this history that just speaks directly to me as a lesbian woman in 2021 like it, it's just incredible yeah it's it's really wonderful and um in a way because uh and Lister is both um, like an interesting historical character, but also new to many people. Um, people want the summary version of like, who is she? Why is she interesting? And that's why we like very quickly go into like, she's a lesbian and this and that, right? It's, it's just a really like, we need to simplify things so people can start thinking about any, any topic. But of course, she's more nuanced and we want to be able to explore more of that. But whenever this topic comes up, like the, one of the first questions I get, like all of the time is like, did she feel any shame? And I'm like, well, what's an unhealthy way to start this conversation? But I think that really speaks to like where we are as a society today. 
And Ann Lister had such a wonderful attitude about herself and who she was. It was so healthy. Like you can really see someone who has really good mental health and like really understands themselves, um, does not question or, or not question, definitely questions herself, but uh, does not berate herself for just being who she is. Like she recognizes she seems different from other people, uh, but she's okay with that. Like she does not have qualms about it. Um, and, and that's what strikes people in this community. Like when they see that, it's so affirming to see something like that from someone in the past, right? You reflect on someone who was able to live their best life at a time where the odds were really against her. So if you, you know, I think a lot of people like see that and they're like, wow, and then they think about themselves today. And they're like, wow, if she could do it then, like, could I, could I do it? Uh, could I do better? Like it, it just, it's incredibly affirming in that way. And of course, she used her privilege to her advantage uh, and was able to really live the life she wanted for the most part at a time where it would have been like particularly difficult. Um, but some of her friends didn't share the same liberties. And so I always like have a, a bee in my bonnet for about like calling her the first modern lesbian. Like, what does that mean? Like there have been lesbians forever. Um, but uh, her, you know, she was part of a larger group of people who shared that same trait. Um, but uh, most of her friends, if, if not many of them, um, did not, weren't able to do uh, as she did, weren't able to really express themselves to the extent that she was able to, even though they shared a lot of the same interests and, um, you know, uh, uh, social context, uh, living in the same areas. So I think that's one of the reasons why she really stands out is because she was able to make that happen for herself. I find um, uh, what you've said about her relationships with other women really interesting because I think that it's really easy to put people into boxes of your, you have a relationship that's a close friend, you have a relationship that's um, that's a sexual relationship. And I, I actually think life life now is more complicated than that. Um, and people aren't, people aren't linear. They don't always go in the same direction and that's the same with their sexuality. So I find the fact that there's um, examples of that in the past. Um, that we can draw from really really interesting so thank you for sharing that i think it's fascinating <laughs> um so we touched on um gentleman jack a little bit could you tell me about um sort of how does that dramatization of historical people uh, you know what's the kind of positives and negatives that come with that because um i think that'd be really interesting well first gentleman jack is brilliant uh, it's just an excellently told story and wonderfully produced show. Like Sally Wainwright is just fantastic. Uh, and it was also my first exposure to Ann Lister. So uh, what I think it has done amazingly is it's captured what made her so interesting and unique because that's what hooked me. And I think that's what hooks a lot of people. So uh, in that sense, it does such a fantastic, remarkable job at really capturing her essence as a person, like what kind of person she is, uh, which, you know, a, a TV show, especially one season of a TV show is definitely not gonna cover someone's entire life and all of the aspects or dimensions of their character. But it does such a good job of really talking about like who she is in turn, like both her sort of internal voice and how she thinks about herself as well as how she's perceived in her social context. So I think that's one of the really great things about it. And I was gonna just say, you know, it's a drama, it needs drama. And sometimes that means uh, combining some historical events 
uh, in different orders, like, uh, or adding a storyline to make it come together. And I think that's not detrimental to the understanding of who this historical character is, because, you know, it's, it's, it's not a historical report, it is a drama. And so uh, it's using that as a base, uh, the historical character as a base, but it's building on that. And I think, you know, that's, that's appropriate. And it's, it's what, I think it's fine as it is. And it, it does so in a, in a really fun way, because uh, if you start, if you get interested in Enlister and then you start researching her, then you're going to see so much more nuance and you can, it's kind of fun to see like, oh, this wasn't actually quite like that, but it referred to an event that was really meaningful for Enlister. Like they talk about Blackstone Edge, which was like a really important aspect of her life, but it was literally said in passing in one scene. So you can really delve into that and really understand what that means to her. Uh, like her relationship to, to Mariana Lawton was so meaningful throughout her life. And in the show, Mariana's portrayed a little bit like the bad guy. Uh, and in fact, she got along really well with Ann Walker, who was Enlister's uh, uh, wife later, later in life. So there are some things that you like, it's a good starting point, even if it's like, like not 100% historically accurate. Um, I think it does a absolutely fine job as a starting point, because no one is you know, watching the TV show to write a historical account, right? They're they're watching that for entertainment. Um, and I think being able to distinguish that is really important. Um, and it's not just the TV show that goes into fantasy territory. There are some books about Enlister that are not necessarily fully evidence-based. So as you start researching, you also see that in other media. Uh, and I think that's always true of anything. There's like both, uh, you know, well-meaning interpretations that may be going off of like the wrong tangent and maybe portray her in certain ways that are not quite accurate. Um, but also all of us, as we were looking at Enlister, we're interpreting, you know, a set of historical evidence, a lot of it self-reported. Um, and so there's, there's, I think, only so much we can say about like what is accurate or not accurate. Yeah, how much do you think she kind of edited? Uh, you you mentioned that she did burn some correspondence. Do, do you think even the, especially the elements that are in code, do you think she wrote those purely for herself? Or do you think she wrote them thinking that one day somebody else might read them? Like, it kind of, I'm interested in what, what her reasons were for recording and keeping so much, like, and whether she had any consciousness that they might you know, pass, pass down at some point. I think I've come to the conclusion throughout this process that she was just a little bit of a hoarder, really. <laughs> <laughs> I think this, I think that's a fair description of her. But um, I mean, there is evidence that there were others in her social circle who had access to the, the crypt, uh, the crypt hand. Um, and actually, um, we sort of think that it was developed in combination with her first partner first girlfriend who is Eliza Rain because Eliza Rain actually used the crypt in her own journal so I think it's fair to say that the both of them may may have devised it together in order to communicate with one another um the, you know their private feelings and things um and she also Anne had also shared um a copy of the the code with various girlfriends so that they could communicate privately but in terms of the crypt that she uses in her journals, I mean, it's difficult to say because I've never personally sort of read her, her talk about her reasons for using the crypt. I've sort of thought myself, what, you know, 
why did she feel that this was necessary? How would she feel about us reading through it now and airing her dirty laundry basically in, in public? It's difficult because Helena Whitbread always says um, that uh, history is fair game. <laughs> Someone said to her, history is fair game. Um, and I kind of agree with that, but on the other hand, like as I'm as I'm literally, you know, going through and, and breaking the crypt, I'm, I'm quite uncomfortable sometimes with the things that I read. And I do think, oh my gosh, you know, this is personal. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. Yeah, and, and there's a really lovely line from the journal that I that I like a lot, speaking to that, which she says, I owe a good deal to this journal by unburdening my mind on paper. I feel, as it were, to get rid of it. So she really thought, seems to have thought of the journal as a way to just get things off her mind and think through things. So it was like the act of writing had value to her. Um, I think possibly my opinion more so than the artifact of the journal itself. Uh, so I think it seems to me like that was the thing that was like valuable to her in the moment. Uh, I'm sure she had other thoughts about the future state of the journals, but it seems like the value of what it afforded her through the years on the day to day, because she was so consistent about writing and capturing every detail that it had a pretty meaningful role in her like well-being and thinking about life and things like that I think I think writing was therapeutic for her and it's incredible to me sometimes to think she was so diligent in in capturing everything that she did throughout the day how on earth did she remember it all for a start and then how on earth did she find the time to sit and write pages and pages when she was so busy doing so many other things it was like it was such a priority to her that she you know, and she would get frustrated with herself when she was days behind in, in writing her journal up. And, and that would be really annoying because then she'd have to spend longer doing it. But you just think, oh my God, you've found all this time. Like, I can barely write a post-it note. You know, it's it's just incredible to me that she, that she was just so diligent with it. Yeah, and, and it's, I think, easy to, to, to downplay just how much how much that occupied her day. Um, not only was she doing that consistently, and if she got behind, she would get caught up and put the time to doing that, but she also created these like really detailed indices about like which letters she wrote, which books she read uh, as part of the journal in the back of the journal. Uh, that's someone who is really interested in managing their own information space and like really values that. And, and those are really tools for the self. Those are not tools for others necessarily. And I think that that really comes through in, in the journals. I get, I get the feeling like if she was alive now, she'd be one of these people that has like these 50 million apps on their phone that record, you know, how much they've drank that day. And, you know, like sort of all the minutiae of the detail of their life as well as their thoughts and feelings. Absolutely. 100%. So um, one of the things that, um, you know, when you're talking about her, her writing so prolifically and writing in, in Cypher as well, do you think, and, and being such an unusual person, um, you know, having such a busy mind, um, that's how she strikes me. I almost want to say genius, really, because she sounds like on that kind of that kind of genius platform, really, just through um, through such through through having so many varied interests and being such a writer, etc. But um, do you think she worried about being judged for being different, or do you think she had the self confidence to 
to just kind of brush that off? I think she had um, the awareness of like her position in society and uh, definitely had a very explicit expectation that she could better that position uh, through her own actions. Um, and so in that way, she was very aware of like how she was being seen. And to um, uh, what Amanda mentioned before, where she would write in her journal that she was mending her own clothes, she would write that in code. Like she did not want other people to know that she had to do that. Like she wanted okay. to present herself as someone who didn't have to do that sort of thing. So I think that's the lens that, that she, she had that understanding of like how she's seen by others was more of like presenting herself as more well-off or better positioned than she actually was. And, and did she ever get attacked for being different from other people by, by other people or did her kind of natural charms kind of seem to win people over? Well, she sounds hella charming. Uh, and I imagine that uh, uh, a lot of her ability to do things and go places, that charm played the big role. Like there's one of her, her travels, she really wanted to visit this prison and it was not open for visitation. That was not a thing. And much less for a woman on her own to just show up and visit that. And like she wrote to a bunch of people, like you could really see that person like really is able to like charm and, and like just just try and like put herself out there. So there are some examples like that that really made me feel like that that there was some level of, of charm that allowed her to do uh, a number of, of things um, like that. Why did she want to go visit a prison? Because it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, it, that. Was, it was a, a particular prison. I'm, I'm, the name is escaping me now, but it had a... A treadmill. A treadmill yeah. uh, powered by the inmates. Like she was very interested in a lot of like um, mechanical devices. Like she has a lot of diagrams and discusses that in her journal. So it's evidently something that she was like, oh, I would like to understand this thing. Uh, so let me go check it out. She tried the treadmill as well herself, just because she wanted to know what it was like. <laughs> but I mean, you can imagine that, right? Like this, this woman at that time just showing up and like actually getting her way in, doing this tour and then trying it out. Like it just must have seemed so unusual to everyone involved, but that does not seem to have faced her at all. So um, what, what are your, can you pick a couple of favorite stories about Anista, things that have made you fall in love with her? Um, perhaps a couple each. We, we often talk about our favorite version of Anista. Um, okay, that's interesting. And, and some people are, you know, really interested in um, and the anatomists, you know, dissecting bodies in her Paris apartment or um, and sort of strolling around the Yorkshire Hills. Um, and my personal favourite has got to be mountaineering out. So one of, one of the lesser known facts about Anne Lister is that she was a very accomplished uh, mountaineer and climber and hiker. And she was incredibly fit um, and athletic. And even when she wasn't, you know, climbing mountains, she was she was walking for miles um, to keep herself fit and healthy. And um, it's astounding to me that a woman who lived in the 18, um, in, you know, in 1820, 1830s was able to climb mountains. That just blew my mind when I first heard that and, and I read that. Um, 
yeah, she, she was the first tourist to ever summit Mount Vignemel in France. Um, and because she was able to achieve that, a section of that trail is now named after her, which is just amazing. And you can go and see it on Google Maps and, you know, what a legacy. It's just stunning. <laughs> Funnily enough, I did get that. Uh, that doesn't surprise me so much in that when I was watching Gentleman Jack, I was very struck by her physicality, by her, you know, she's climbing walls and jumping off them and she's not just walking casually through this one, so she's sort of marching through and um, you kind of get that sense of somebody who's got lots of physical energy as well as that mental energy. Yeah, you see that not not only in her achievements as a mountaineer, but even at home, at Shibden, like there are so many uh, passages in her journal about her planting trees. And you can see that she's like really involved, like literally picking up acorns and going around and ordering like things like that. And, and it's just like, you can, you can really tell like how her physicality was important to her day to day. And to be able to fit all the things that she did in a day, you really need to be able to go from place to place fairly quickly. Um, and in some instances, I think we were trying to like measure like how quickly you'd have to go from here to here. Cause she sometimes gives uh, timestamps for like, oh, I left this place at this time and I got there at this time. So you can really tell like how long it took. Um, and it's like, you can really get the sense of someone who's like constantly moving and doing something and uh, that athleticism um, definitely comes through, uh, which makes me think of a, an, an aspect of her of her life that I think is fascinating is just how poorly she eats most of the time for someone who is that athletic. Um, you know, she and and you know some uh, some of what she eats is like historically contextually appropriate. Uh, so modern eyes definitely see that with uh, with some judgment. Uh, but sometimes she just doesn't eat enough. She does so much. And then she's like, I had two eggs mixed with wine and that's it. And then she never drinks water because, and, and it's kind of funny because, you know, as you start researching and reading the journals, you're like, you do all this activity and you never drink water. And then you do a little more research and you realize like, you know, good potable available water was not always yeah. there. So that's a consideration that's relevant. Did um, she drink ale or? Um, so I think beer and beer and gin, but actually, yeah, quite a lot of gin. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are some instances of champagne and other things. I think she was uh, equal opportunity uh, booze person. That's my jawbell. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, hey, my phone rang you earlier, and I, I keep getting spam calls, so I'm pretty sure it was that. <laughs> oh, I was going to deal with it. It's fine. Let's keep going. <laughs> so um, you mentioned about her um, her dissecting. Was that dissecting bodies in Paris? Yeah, that's when uh, she was there, and I, I mentioned that uh, she got some tutors to to help her out and in her studies. And uh, because one of her focuses were was anatomy, you know, dissection is part of that learning process. And so um, they would facilitate the process of acquiring uh, body parts and and other specimens for her to to dissect and. I think there was a entry we were reading the other day about like she got a heart, but what she really wanted was a fetus. And so she was very intrigued by like all aspects of things. So so there are definitely specific evidence of different things that she dissected and, and her interests there. Do you think, um, did the diaries reveal much about her her kind of inner emotions because when you're when you're talking about somebody who who's got this um this desire to learn it sometimes that desire to learn I, I know can make us a little bit um 
Right, selfish isn't quite the right word, but but kind of um, you can get single-minded about your pursuits. I think in life, like you know, just knowing from myself, where 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 you miss clues from other people, you know, whether it's your partner that you're working late because you got really engrossed in a uh, in transcribing and and listers' diaries, it can kind of make you um, slightly oblivious sometimes to other people's feelings. Do you do you think she was? Um, good at reading people's emotions did she relate to other people's emotions quite well or was that something she struggled with um definitely something that i think changed throughout her life and which is just an expression expression of growth <laughs> for any person uh but like if you look at her relationship with ann walker who's someone she was involved with more later in her life uh, even though they they were aware of each other from early early days um you can see sometimes some conflict in their interactions as she describes it, where she just doesn't get what Anne Walker is trying to do. And so it feels like she's being stubborn or something like that. But you can also see over time her starting to appreciate why, like she takes the time to try to understand her. Uh, and you can see that like the conflict was just like normal, like married people conflict. And then because there's a true interest in each other, she takes the time and understands her and learns about it. And so next time it's a little easier or she, she does something for Ann Walker that anticipates, you know, what would have been a conflict in the past. So she seems very aware and very willing to put the time and energy into those relationships uh, and, and really make it work. So I think she had a, a pretty healthy uh, sense of like how, how others relate to her. Um, it's kind of funny because at other times you can see her, she's like very frustrated. Like, why won't this person just, you know, whatever it is. Um, but for the most part, I think she, if she felt like the, the relationship was an important relationship to her. And if she wrote it down in detail, it probably was. Um, then she definitely took the time and, and, and put that energy into, into that relationship, including like some of them who are just via letters, et cetera, uh, really um, she seemed to really care for for the people she chose to make part of her life. And um, and what was her relationship like with her family? Were they quite close knit? You sort of get the feeling that they they she sort of put up with them. I think she was incredibly <laughs> close with her aunt. Her relationship with her aunt is is sort of a constant, really, from the beginning. When you know when you start diving into the diaries early on, up until you know her aunt's death in late eighteen thirties. Um, she's sort of a, I don't know, like a comforting a figure in her life because her mother had died um, much earlier. Um, and when Anne moves to, or moved to Shibden Hall, she was then going to be living with her aunt Anne and um, her uncle James. So obviously that relationship was pretty comfortable for her. If she was, if he was choosing to leave her family home and go and live at Shibden Hall, um, but you do get a sense that her relationship with her sister Marion was a little bit more um, broad. Yeah, and, and with her father as well. I don't think she had a particularly good relationship with her father, although she sort of, you know, felt a responsibility and a duty to take care of him. Um, and Marion, um, I wouldn't say that it was plain sailing all the time. Yeah. What, what family is, really. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she seems to have uh, felt a lot of disappointment in her mother. Um, and um, you see that reflected in other relationships to some extent. I, I, I may be overreaching, but 
um, she seemed really embarrassed by the fact that her mother drank. And so she's very aware when she noticed someone who's a heavy drinker. So that definitely created some friction in her relationship with Isabella Northcliffe Tibb, who is also a pretty heavy drinker. Um, and they were really close friends and they had a really good relationship and they probably have been even closer friends had that not been an issue. But, but in a way it seems like, uh, um, and put some distance between them because that was something that was really bothersome for her. Um, and so her relationship with her mother, I think is something interesting and probably like a, a whole area of like further exploration. And there's some just intriguing clues there. Like for example, the journal entries from the dates of her mother's funeral are removed from the journal. So it really makes you wonder like, did she write something that was like too intense and she decided to get rid of it? Like what, what led those pages to not be there anymore? And there were clearly okay. pages that were written. Okay. Uh, and so uh, they were just like cut off. So uh, what's not there sometimes tells also an interesting story about, about what might have happened. Yeah, that that's um, oh, that's tantalising, isn't it? It's like, did she did she just write the heading and then couldn't bear to write anything about it? And so it's out, like, or did she write something and destroy it? Yeah, that's oh, <laughs> like well, most of history. Like that's a great example of like just the, how fascinating it is to work with the journal as an artifact because you go through those pages and you're like, wait, there's some missing pages. Why? And then you put that into context. You're like, okay, this is the date where her mother funeral would have been taking place. And then you look at the back of the journal and you see that there is in the book index uh, referring to an entry at those dates. So you know she wrote something there because she added it to the index. So like that, there's just other angles of the evidence that really kind of start help shape the story. Um, so fascinating. We just, we go into like so many uh, deep dives into this sort of very specific <laughs> topics. Well, yeah, because then that raises more questions, doesn't it? Because if she was um, editing some of that out, and but she was keeping that book index, that, that makes me think like, who did she expect to read that? Who did, because she'd know that she'd destroyed those pages. So why would she need to have, you know, uh, yeah, that raises like a whole load of... <laughs> Another branch of questions, doesn't it? What's worth mentioning as well is that there is evidence that she would reread her journals, her own journals. She would go back and read over things and sections that she had written. I don't know why, as a way to process, I suppose, things that she had lived through and, and emotionally gone through. And, and perhaps she just, she just couldn't bear reading those pages about her mother. So she removed them. It's, I mean, who knows? We're, all, we're speculating. But... I think it, it does, her silence on that speaks very, very loudly from someone who wrote so much, you know? And does it reveal much about her, her religious beliefs? And what did they kind of, you know, and what did they what, kind of, were they? Broad okay. strokes. <laughs> she, she was definitely uh, someone who, who attended church and, and put, um, uh, put emphasis on the time that she spent there. She also someone who, you know, consistently fell asleep at church because the sermons weren't particularly interesting to her. She had a lot to say in critiques about the quality of sermons. Um, so those are some of the things that she really talks about pretty regularly. She also seemed to be very interested in, like, she traveled a lot. So she also was very open and, in, and interested in looking at, um, uh, especially from an architectural standpoint, like other, other faiths and like visited synagogues and other places. So. I think you know she she definitely valued her her own faith, um, but was 
as everything else, are very interested in, in everyone else. Yeah, we actually have a, a tracker on um, Packed with Potential uh, for her religion. Um, and it basically means that, you know, we have a lot of trackers that track lots of different themes throughout the, um, the journals. And this one specifically pulls out um, her experiences in church, or I had a I had a particularly interesting sermon in when she was in Paris in 1824. She attended a sermon um, of service and then regurgitated the entire sermon into her journal, which I then had to transcribe, which is like quite tough. <laughs> but there's, we try to sort of keep a keep a track on it so that then we can go back and use it as you know further analysis of of her beliefs and how they may have changed over over the years. And that's had such a fantastic memory. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that's one of the, the important points of like, why create these trackers? Like there's so much work. Not only people have to transcribe the journals first, but then have to take a pass at understanding like for any particular topic, are there relevant uh, passages that we want to look at? But doing that, uh, we're not doing that with like a particular question. Like we're looking for a specific thing necessarily. It's more like, uh, can we uh, get any other insights by looking at this over time and looking like just stepping away from the day-to-day -day of each entry and see the arc of a story or some interesting points or some patterns like there were we also have a, a health tracker so like she always captures her period and her friend's periods like I think it's such an interesting set of data there just to understand like Oh, were there some, you know, concerns of the time that affected their periods or their practices and how they dealt with that? It's just really interesting. And I think a lot of these like interesting stories will reveal themselves once we're able to really look across, uh, which hadn't been possible uh, until the transcription of the journals, because that information wasn't really available for us to be able to look at it and interrogate it and code it and uh, really create a reference for for these different frames. So, like that was that's one of the things that's really important about the the, the project that we have is we want to welcome people's questions. Like, is there a new area that you're interested in about and Lister that we know nothing about that we should start interrogating, that we should start encoding and see what comes out and we can explore further. Yeah, I love that. I I can imagine. You know, you've got you've got kind of the very practical things like how much did somebody's diet affect them and and you know talking about periods did you did your bad diet affect your periods at all um but then you've got things that are much more um sort of philosophical and that could change almost on a daily basis i mean whose whose religious thoughts are, are static <laughs> you know some days i have more faith than others and i'm i would classify myself as a christian but you know mm -hmm. so um yeah that's really fascinating um just how old was Anne Lister when she started her diaries? I, I meant, should have asked at the beginning. Um, she, so her earlier, the, the first volume of the journals collect a, a few different years where she was less consistent. She has just started. Um, but I think the earliest entry I'm going to say is she was 17. Is that correct? I, I think it's like 1805, 1806-ish. That's yeah. young. Yeah, it's young, young. Yeah, and the first entries young. are like one-liners. Like she has the date and she makes a statement about like something about that day. And only later on, they start to become more robust and really describe her activities. And um, do we know when she died and did she keep them in her later years as well? 
how old was she when she passed away? Um, the, the last journals that we have are from 1839. Uh, she died in, in 1840. So uh, it is possible and very likely that she was writing through the end uh, while she was in Russia with Ann Walker, uh, where she died. Um, and, but we just don't have that later part of, of her life. But based on her practice for years and years, there's no reason why she would not have written every day during her, her journals, her travels. So she, she had both travel journals and her day-to-day -day journals. And a lot of times there's, she transcribes between them. And, and so it's fantastic. But, uh, but that section or later in life story is, is not there. Oh, maybe it's hidden somewhere and we'll find it one day, <laughs> somewhere in Russia. <laughs> um, so if people want to come and find out more about Anne Walker and about the Pact with Potential project, where can they come find you? Uh, they can come to pactwithpotential.org. Um, that's where you can find all of the open projects uh, and you can contribute to any of them, whether you're a transcriber or not. There is plenty of research to be done. Uh, also, absolutely open to any new project ideas. Uh, what we hope to do is support anyone who's interested in researching Enlister, whether it's like infrastructure, helping you set up a project or helping you find other people who are also interested and can work on those problems. Um, we also help and facilitate people publishing articles about the things that they found. Like there, we have a variety of stories that people have told as a, a summary of all the research that they've done from, you know, heraldry to uh, uh, Ann Walker's uh, um, uh, lunacy commission. And like, there's a whole host of things. So we, we really want to be a springboard for people to discover Enlister, uh, find the resources that they need to do that. Um, and we are always open for new collaborations. And if somebody was a bit on the fence about whether they might find Anne Lister interesting or not, what would you, what would your one kind of like, you'll be amazed by this kind of takeaway be to entice them over? Um, I mean, watching the TV show is a really fantastic place to start because it both summarizes and piques your interest. Um, and I think a lot of people's first question is like, okay, now I watch the show, like, where do I go? What do I do? And you can it's easy to just offer all of the things and say like, go off the deep end and look at everything and start transcribing. Uh, but there are some really fantastic books to get people started. Uh, Anne Showman's companion uh, book to the TV show is great because it talks about that same period of time and provides a lot more context. Um, Jill Liddington's Female Fortune is a fantastic book because it provides like a historical context for a lot of what Enlister was doing between uh, 1833 and 1836. Um, there are just so many fantastic books. I'm just looking at my, my book collection here. Um, Amanda, I don't know if you have a favorite you want to point out. If you, I mean, if you're interested in, in understanding Enlister in her earlier years, around like 1820s time, um, Helena Whitbread's books are absolutely essential. Brilliant. I will make sure that there's notes to all of those in the uh, in the description on YouTube and, and in the podcast notes. So thank you ever so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you both. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. If you enjoyed this video, don't forget to hit subscribe or visit me at www.genealogystories.co.uk.